And when I drink coffee, I get really euphoric. So it's like the best time of my whole day where I'm in my car, away from the weather, I'm sipping my coffee, and I'm listening to an audiobook. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Poetry is when an emotion has found its thought and the thought has found words. So said Robert Frost, and he knew a thing or two about poetry, depending on who you ask. Welcome to the Keep It Fictional's very, very special episode for National Poetry Month. My name is Corrine, and I am joined today by my poetic book friends, Virginia, Fiona, and Mark. Okay, Virginia, you can be poetic. I've heard you say nice words. And what is a poem but a bunch of nice words strung together like pearls on a, on a string? Anyways, the League of Canadian Poets, which is probably the funniest start of a sentence I have ever said in my entire life, has chosen as this National Poetry Month theme to be joy. So I hope everyone had a joyous time reading their poetry assignments. Fiona, I know that you are not opposed to poetry. So how did you find this assignment? Um, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, I would say I am not opposed to poetry. I would say that I think poetry is like altogether separate from reading or at least like what I want to get from it. So it was almost like undertaking like a new activity or a new hobby. It's like, you know, maybe I could integrate this into my life, but it would never like replace novels for me. It might just be like an additional thing that I like to do. Well, if you're wanting to combine like the power of the novel with the enjoyment of poetry, you could do novels in verse because I know one of us is not a big fan of poetry, but can endure a novel in verse. Virginia, what are your poetry thoughts? Well, poetry is definitely not my thing. I don't think I understand how to appreciate them. I read enough of them in English lit class throughout my life. And I see that point I, as a literary device and exercise, but I don't get them. I don't feel the emotional connections that people are supposed to feel with poetry. I just don't understand them. So, yeah. Much like we discovered that we don't feel anything when we look at trees, some of us also don't feel anything when we look at poetry. Um, Mark, what about you? Are you like a poet in your soul? Not sure about that phrasing, but um, I would say that definitely like Fiona, I'm not opposed to poetry. I think I can appreciate the sort of underlying way of connecting things together that you would not necessarily associate with one another in an everyday like kind of way of expressing something. And I found that the poems I enjoy the most tend to be the ones that are surprising in what they say, rather than sort of expressing like a standard kind of a familiar way, finding a new way to associate these things together or to say it in a way that's different from what you'd find in a novel. The creativity aspect of it, I think, is probably what would be the number one aspect, I would say, of it. Fiona and Mark, you are in good company because poetry is experiencing a renaissance, a resurgence, or as I read the, in the article, it is having a moment. In an NPR survey in 2018, apparently they haven't done any poetry surveys since then, they found that the amount of adults in the United States reading poetry has actually doubled to a very impressive 11.7%, which is actually 
pretty impressive. So that is one in 10 adults are reading poetry on their free time. And a lot of what they tie to this is Instapoets, meaning poets on Instagram, who have kind of found this platform and used it to promote their poetry and their words to audiences that might not otherwise be exposed to poetry in their everyday life. For example, Rupi Kaur has 4 million Instagram followers. As of the article that I was reading, I'm sure she has many, many, many more. And I think what is really exciting about poetry at this particular moment is that because it is such an accessible medium, like really you don't need much. You don't even need a lot of time. You can scribble down a a poem on a post-it note. All you need is a writing utensil and some paper. Anyone can do it. Anyone can write a poem. Anyone can kind of find that small moment of time to pour their heart out on the page and and publish it on Instagram. Whereas like sometimes a, a novel, writing a novel is a privilege of time. So I think that that's kind of exciting. There's also a lot of kind of up and coming people of color using poetry to kind of express their thoughts, their struggles, their joy. Again, using a medium that has not always been accessible to them because their voices have been closed out of publishing. So I think in that way, poetry is very exciting in that we're hearing a lot more stories. We're hearing a lot more voices. And it's short. Oh, my gosh. That's the one joy about poetry is that it's really, really short. You could just sit down, read a poem, be like, I I did a poetry today. I did a poetry. And so we are here today to celebrate all of that poetry. And we're doing it kind of in two formats. So there is your regular book of poems. And then, as mentioned when we were talking to Virginia, a novel in verse. So this is an actual story, a narrative with all the things that you look for in a novel. Characters, setting, plot that is not told in Prose, still words, still definitely said with words. We're definitely using those and like metaphors and similes. But it is told in poems rather than through prose. This is a format that I think is probably more popular in middle grade literature and some YA. doesn't really translate over into adults, which is kind of disappointing because I love novels and verse so much. And I think an adult book in this could be really effective, but for some reason, there's not a ton of them. But Virginia has decided to take up the torch of the novel in verse for us. So burn it down, Virginia. Burn it down for us. All right. So yes, I knew I was going to do a novel in verse because poetry is not my thing. Novel in verse is also not a format that I seek out in particular either. So I figure, you know what, it's going to be difficult either way. So why not up the ante and make it challenging by reading a book that is not written in English? And I'll tell you more about that in a bit. So this is a book that got on my radar because it won the 2022 Arthur C. Clarke Award. Now, this is a science fiction award for the best science fiction novel first published in the United Kingdom during the previous year. So that was how I discovered this book. Never heard of it before that. And I find that that seems to be the case for Arthur C. Clarke Awards. They always pick really interesting things that are not your like mainstream sort of award winners that you expect. Like, because for Nebula von Hugo, you kind of know who's going to win. It's very obvious. Their shortlist is obvious. Whereas for the Alpha C. Clark Awards, sometimes they are a little bit more obscure. And this one definitely would fit. So it was definitely one that I, I pick up because of it. And I always pay attention to that award and I always try to read something for it because it's always like new titles that I, I don't know as well. It's hit and miss for me, but this was definitely an interesting one. Not only has this book won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, it is also a first in many ways, especially for the language that it is written in. So this is 
Deep Wheel Orcadia, and it is by Harry Josephine Giles, and it is the first science fiction novel in verse written in Orkney, so the Scottish dialect, and it is also the first full-length novel in Orkney that is published in more than 50 years. So I am going to talk a bit more on the format and the language, I think, today, because not only because that's the topic of the day, but also it's, it's quite phenomenal that the publication for this book. But first, you know, a little bit of the story. The story is set on a remote space station called Ocadia, and there lives a small community, and they make their living by harvesting this fuel called light. And like many small communities, their lives are changing because the world is changing as different technologies get developed, for example. So we meet the people in this community during this time of change. This book, unlike some of the other science fiction stories that focus very much on like what's happening in the world, what's happening outside, this one doesn't. It really, really focuses on the daily lives of the people. And you get sort of a snapshot of them during the day in all the poems, in all the verses. And you get a sense of like that very micro level rather than this whole big background about like what is happening in space. Not only do we meet the people who come from the community, we also meet people who came to the station as visitors that are not from there. So we have a few archaeologists that are doing research right now on the wreckages that are left behind by potentially some other species or aliens. We meet Darling, one of our main characters, who is fleeing from something and some people and has came to the station to try to find out who they are. And she meets Astrid, who was born on the station but has gone to art school on Mars and has come back. And she is kind of looking for inspiration for her next project. And these two, they fell very quickly for one another. And Astrid was trying to show Darling like her home. but as she was doing that, you know, of course, Darling, being from somewhere else, actually speaks our version of English in, in the verses. And, and she sort of represents that outside world that, that Astrid kind of knows, but not really. And Astrid, who's trying to tell and show Darling her home, is kind of wrestling within herself. On the one hand, really proud of the things in her community and, and sometimes really fiercely protective of it. But at the same time, she also recognized that a lot of the traditions, a lot of the beliefs that she has grown up with no longer fits her. So very, very much focus on these characters and their feelings, which I feel like is probably why it works really well in a verse, because that is what sort of poetry often focuses on. As you can imagine, the space station, of course, is based on the islands that the author grew up in and is inspired by sort of the similar kinds of changes that Orkney is also experiencing as the world changes around it. And listening to Harry Josephine Giles talk about this book, they said it was really important for them that they wrote a science fiction because a lot of books and stories like science fiction that speaks about the future, they're very much dominated by languages of, you know, all the empires of the world, but they want to show how important it is that a small dialect, a small community can have a future tense, that there is a future and they will exist and they will survive to show that resilience of a community. So it's very intentional that they didn't just write a contemporary story about Orkney, but instead they decide to choose the science fiction as the genre to write the story in. 
Now, the format of the book is also very purposeful. And this is where you kind of do need the paper book to appreciate it. As much as I love ebooks, at least mine wasn't structured in that way. I originally picked up the, the paper book probably for all the wrong reasons because I have absolutely no mastery of the English phonetic system at all. So it's not intuitive to me how words are supposed to sound like. So despite the many claims that, oh yeah, the Orkney verses are very readable, I can only assume that when you read it out loud and you sang it out loud, many of the words will be familiar because there might be some English equivalents or it sounds like some English words. And so you supposedly should be able to get like up the bulk of it by reading the Orkney. Well, that's not the case for me because I'm just so bad at this English thing. So I was like trying to figure out, well, if I get the paper version, at least I'll be able to flip back and forth a little quickly rather than on like on a yearbook. Because in the yearbook, you basically wait till the end of the poem before you get to the English translation, which is also provided by the author themselves. So it was a little harder in the yearbook version to do that. And so I would be reading a whole chunk. I would say probably I got like maybe like a one quarter of it. So it's like, you know, like I a whole big poem that I have no idea what's going on and then get to the English. And it just, it doesn't quite work for me in the beginning. It was also like, I think my language learning brain was also really conditioned to learn like vocabulary. So I really wanted to like get to know those words. So I was thinking like, well, if I know those sight words, like if I know the words for like child, for like it, for one, for after, like all those sight words, then maybe I will be able to like learn it, right? Like, or at least like be able to read it a little bit better. So I'll just keep trying to like, I want, I want to flip to the translation so I know what this word is and then like see if I can remember it like correctly or whatever. So that, that's definitely not the way you should be reading this book. But when I finally sort of got the paper version, I also recognized that this very deliberate formatting of the page and it's making a statement just by how the page looks like. Because the octiverse basically occupy a two-third of the page. And because it's in verse, it's, it, there's a lot of white space and it takes up more room. Whereas the English translation provided by the author is below in the bottom third of the page. And it is also in a smaller font size. And it's also in a more of paragraph kind of format. So it's very much put focus on the Orkney, on the original verse. And I try my best to really honor that and, you know, and try to read that first before I got into the English. But at least in the paper format, it sort of chops up the, the whole poem in like more like little bits. And so I can kind of get a little bit at a time. So it was a little bit easier. But the translation method that Harry Josephine Giles chose to use in this particular book was also another statement that she's making about languages. What they did was they used what they call the compound word kind of translation method that they credited a Gaelic poet using. And basically for a lot of the unique kind of Orkney words or words that even sometimes words that like you can read it and you're like, oh, yeah, I think that's what it means in English. And that's because there's a like a, a approximate in English. Instead of giving you that one word translation, what they did was they gave you a compound word instead. And the compound word is made of all the possible meanings of this particular word in Agni. So it's not picking one out of all the possible meanings. It's giving you all of them. So you have a string of like a bunch of letters together and they're all English words, but you still have to kind of like figure out each individual words that make up this giant long word. So for example, in one of the sentences, it's got the word like barman. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it right, but it's translated as rage, froth, seething. 
So it's like this whole long word there. And, and right there, you know, you can see that we are honoring, we're recognizing that in the Orkney language, there are the uniqueness that cannot be translated into English. And we know that there's so many words in so many languages that so perfectly encapsulate a concept. And it will take like a whole paragraph in English to try to explain what that word actually means. And it really shows like, you know, there is deficiency in a language that supposedly is widely spoken and all of that, but it still is not sufficient enough to show what it really means in Orkney. And it also stops you as you're reading this translation, even if you, you think it's more accessible to you, it stops your reading because whenever you see these giant long words, you're like trying to parse them into its components. And so it's never a straightforward reading, even in the English version of it. And I also find myself keep going back to the Orkney. And again, that, that was the paper one really helped. I, I want to go back and try, what is that wonderful word that gives me so many meanings, right? Because when you look at like, yeah, I get the word rage, but it's like it's wrath and it's seething. Like it adds so many layers, especially when it, it in a poem, you know, a lot of them is very like emotional kind of impact. And so it really builds up on that. And I really, really enjoy that. And so there's like, such a dialogue between those two languages. And it was great. You cannot just read the English. You have to go to the Orkney. And that really makes you appreciate all the different uniqueness of all the different languages that are out there. Because of the the way the story is, it's very quiet. You know, there's not like a, a big overarching story. It's really about the vignettes, about the moments in people's life. It's a type of story that, that would be a little different from some of the science fiction story that you might think of when you think about science fiction. But in talking about this book, the jury has chosen for the RFC Clark Award. They basically said that like, you know, Deep Will Ocadia is the sort of book that makes you rethink what a science fiction can do and makes the reading experience feel strange in a new and thrilling way. It's as if language itself becomes the book's hero and the genre is all the richer for it. So I hope you will give this book a chance, pick up this really, really special book written in Orkney. This is Deep Will Ocadia and it is by Harry Josephine Giles. That is fascinating. That is absolutely fascinating. Huh. What What made you pick, like, other than just like the award? Because when you this is the person talking that when I started reading Harry Potter as a kid and I came on against like Hagrid's dialect, I was like, oh, I can't do this. Like, you had to, that's a book that you kind of have to power through. What what kept you motivated to keep reading it? This podcast. <laughs> it was just an excuse to like not have to read a book of poetry. No, like I no, I bought I bought the book like because I was really curious, right? Like I was really curious to, and I knew already right away that this is no way. Like and like the back is set is like what does it say? Um, like extremely readable, effortlessly readable story. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like this is so much effort. But it was really interesting. Like I said, it was just, I think it's because, you know, we like languages, right? We like words. So I I was just like, like I said, I really like every time I, I go through the, the translation, I'm just like, oh, what is this word? Like, you know, it was just so interesting to see. I watched some clips of Harry Josephine Giles reading the book themselves. And it helped me to at least listen to a little bit of the sound of the book. And that was super interesting. And I think, you know, like I, I did have to like kind of, like I said, like, you know, pick up the paper and just like take my time with it. But yeah. It's a really interesting pick for like the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Like that's a, a, a very bold, very, very interesting choice. But as you said, like they're, they're always kind of zagging on us versus like the nebula and the Hugo where you're like, well, 
I think I've got a pretty good guess as to who did this. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Virginia. I actually might pick that up, put that on hold. Okay. So from a novel in verse in in many voices, um, I went a little bit more traditional. I went with a singular poetry collection. See how I'm already struggling just to say the word poetry. This is going to go very well. I picked up a book that's kind of been on my bucket list for a really long time. This collection was published in 1996. It was their kind of like debut collection, although they've been included in other anthologies before. And as I was just searching the shelves for a book of poetry, to read yesterday. This one caught my eye because I've always wanted to read it. And I've always been interested in the author because they kind of grew up in Alberta. And so I'd kind of heard of them here or there when I was going to university. And so I was really excited to pick this up. And then this was part of the Indigenous collection uh, at the library. So I was doubly excited to see that this one uh, that was purchased has an introduction by Lee Miracle. So it was like, whoa, that's like a du- that's like a double whammy of amazingness. Um, so I chose to read for Poetry Month Marilyn Dumont's "A Really Good Brown Girl" with a new introduction by Lee Miracle. This is part of the Brick Book Classics for Brick Books, and it's got a brick on the front, which I don't really know has anything to do with the poems, but you know, <laughs> L- love a theme. So Marilyn Dumont is of Métis and Cree ancestry. As I said, she grew up kind of in the uh, northern Alberta area, as far as I could tell from sifting through many, many biographies, because I'm always good. I'm always there for like Alberta gossip. She was born in Olds. And through her kind of ancestry, she is related to Gabrielle Dumont. So she has a really strong sense of history, a really strong sense of her ancestors. She took her BA at UBC. um, So she has spent some time in the lower mainland and then has continued to live in Alberta, taking a lot of writers and residencies. And this collection itself, published in 1996, won the Gerard Lampert Award, which was presented by, my new favorite sentence, the League of Canadian Poets. Sorry. No, it's not funny, but it kind of is. I just imagine them with sashes and like, anyway. Um, Yes. So this is her first collection of poetry. And I wanted to kind of start with a quote from The Room magazine where she talks about why she writes and why she writes poetry. Writing has saved my emotional, spiritual, and intellectual life in a country where I wasn't supposed to exist, let alone thrive. It allows me to sort out the mess of structural inequality, bureaucratic obfuscation, colonial racism, and sexism. It allows a space for my voice and sense of self. And reading through this collection that she wrote mostly in her 30s, you really do get a strong sense of who she is. What I enjoy about poetry, unless it's a novel in verse and I'm actually getting plot and characters, if it's coming from a singular voice, is that perfect, exquisite expression of an emotion or a thought. Because poetry takes something big and distills it into its most base and perfect form. And I think that is what uh, Marilyn Dumont does really well in her poems. She's taking these these giant ideas, these giant concepts, these these struggles that she's had, and she's distilling them into the perfect word choice put into the perfect order that you instantly feel and understand 
who she was at that time and what she was feeling. And I think that is the skill of a really great poet of that you just have that that flash of insight or that that lightning bolt of understanding or empathy with with what she was thinking and what she was feeling. And she does this for a variety of subjects. Um, she talks again about growing up Métis in a predominantly white city and feeling feeling what she calls the white judges of them living in their little schoolhouse with a plank staircase going up to the second floor and all of the family sleeping upstairs in their little single beds arranged like a little school and having this kind of like pot of moose stew boiling on the oven at all times. But outside, they can feel the white judges encircling their houses, just waiting and watching for them to do something, to step out of bounds, to do something expected but not expected. And she really taps into the joy of that kind of, that home, that family, that connection with her her mother, her father, and her grandparents being in that, that little nest of home, but knowing that the outside is, is always watching, that she kind of exists, and, and this is kind of a theme through all of her, her poems, is existing in two worlds. The, the Métis world, the world of her family, and then the outside white world. And so she tackles this again in um, one of her poems of like memoirs of a really good brown girl. And she pulls on one of her, her memories of going to a wedding, and she's part of the wedding party. And one of the white women that is part of this wedding kind of grabs her and, and scrubs her. <laughs> and cleans her and tries to get her as pristine as possible but she says you know you can't you can't rub the brown off my skin it's it's who i am but this woman kept scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing yeah she talks about her schooling being in the education system of trying to be perfect to be the most respectable knowing that for her, there are so many dangers out in the world. She has a really kind of heartbreaking poem of um, Helen Betty Osborne, in which she says, Betty, if I set out to write this poem about you, it might turn out instead to be about me or any one of my female relatives. It might turn out to be about this young Native girl growing up in rural Alberta in a town with fewer Indians than ideas about Indians in a town just south of the Aryan nations. If I start to write a poem about you, it might turn out to be about hunting season instead, about open season on Native women. She has an amazing way of distilling her experience and her life and her world into a few lines where you just get it. You just absolutely understand where she's coming from and what she's trying to say. And I think for that reason, like, even if you're not a poetry person, even if this is not your favorite genre, you'll never be... <sighs> 
Poetry is the most direct way of someone talking directly to you. A novel still has the trappings of the genre, still has the trappings of character, has the ideas of setting and plot and all of that things. But a poem, when done correctly and when done perfectly, is one human being directly talking to another human being. It's the most intimate form of communication that you can have because they're trying to put everything that they feel in a line or a verse. And I think that's what Marilyn Dumont does perfectly in this collection. So if you are tentative about dipping your toes into the ocean of poetry, which I sometimes count myself as, but you are looking for a really singular, unique, and wonderful voice, even if you don't read this entire collection, because again, it's a collection. Some of them are going to be for you. Some of them are not going to be for you. And that's okay. That's the joy of poetry. You can open it up and, as Fiona said, make it a practice in everyday life, read a single poem, and then put it down. You haven't committed that much time, but if you're willing to commit a couple of minutes and a moment of your time, you might have your entire worldview changed by a single line in a poem. And I think if you are looking for that kind of experience, you can pick up Marilyn Dumont's A Really Good Brown Girl. All right, we are going to switch over to another poetry appreciator, not hater. We're going to switch over to Fiona. Fiona, what poet did you choose for us today? I went with a collection by Jericho Brown, and this is my first introduction to him. He won the Pulitzer Prize for poetry for this collection that I read today. But I'm going to start off with a long and and not not too related anecdote before I get to that. So someone recommended this to me, and I so I really wanted to read it. But I usually read poetry in text in a physical book, but I actually couldn't get a hold of it. So uh, while it was not actually my first choice, I did listen to this as an audiobook, which was quite different than seeing the words on the page. And I kind of almost wish like, oh, I could do both at the same time or at different times. But as you know, my audiobook routine is is to listen while I'm driving. And I also drink my coffee while I listen. And when I drink coffee, I get really euphoric. So it's like the best time of my whole day where I'm in my car, away from the weather, I'm sipping my coffee, and I'm listening to an audiobook. And so during this like time of euphoria when I was listening to Jericho Brown, I had this like epiphany and like just felt like I got poetry. And, you know, because that was very coffee induced, I feel like now that I'm trying to just like it's just a memory of that experience, I'm probably going to fumble around. But it was this like just beautiful moment of hearing these words spoken aloud and recognizing that it's so different from prose. It's like when you create a poem, when you create a collection of poems, you're making like an entity, like a distilled entity, more like an album or a piece of artwork. And it lives in the world and people read it and experience it. They quote it, they borrow from it. And it can really, it can really be powerful in this way that like something, like something that's really there, like physically there in the world can be. I don't, again, this is like some euphoric rambling, but it just really felt so 
so clear to me how great poetry was in that moment, and in particular, how great Jericho Brown's poetry was. So um, he did win the Pulitzer Prize for this collection, which is called The Tradition. I struggled with, I guess, with feeling like I fully understand it. So I, I want to talk about it because I really loved it. But I also want to like do that with a grain of salt and say that, you know, like, I think that I probably missed quite a bit throughout. The collection to me felt very much about contemporary Blackness, but then completely acknowledging that within the context of enslavement in the past and with intergenerational trauma. So he also talks about a lot of other subjects related and not. Uh, in particular, there's a lot about gun violence, about police brutality. And I do want to share a little snippet from one of the poems here. This is the end of the poem. I'll just read it. It speaks for itself. Cosmos, baby's breath. Men like me and my brothers filmed what we planted for the proof we existed before. Too late. Sped the video to see blossoms brought in seconds, colors you expect in poems, where the world ends, everything cut down, John Crawford, Eric Garner, Mike Brown. So something about the way that he balances forcefulness with gentleness in his poetry was really impactful for me, and especially listening to it, this lulling of words that fit together beautifully, and then punch, punch. Like, and that's, that's just what it feels like to listen to. He, he speaks directly to people in his poetry. This one that stood out, and, and I didn't look up the context, but, but from what you're hearing, the assumption is that the, the creator of the toothbrush um, was uh, probably uh, a, a deeply racist man and uh, likely enslaved people. And he's talking about having to meet his son and how he doesn't want to shake his hand and how he wants to spit on him and there's nothing in the world that he can do. And and that bringing that nearness of the past and future and that connection is what I feel like he does really well throughout the collection. He also speaks a lot about elders. He speaks a lot about grandmothers, how they see themselves as good black women and they see good white people and this sort of perspective that he doesn't agree with but he can still love them because he understands what they went through and why they see things this way, even though he's able to see them differently. There is also a lot of sex in the collection. And one of my touch points for poetry is Billy Ray Belcour. And when he speaks about sex, it's very direct and just like vivid and, and, oh, like, like almost, ugh, almost like makes you feel cringely intentionally. And I felt like the way that Jericho Brown talks about sex is as direct, but somehow veiled. That makes it just feel the like the same way he speaks about everything else, which was just, I don't know, so interesting to me. So I'm really glad that uh, I picked this up and I would definitely encourage everyone to pick it up because I think it, it really had a lot to say about uh, the state of race relations in North America right now from a very personal and grounded perspective. I'm glad I picked it up because I feel like it it changed my perspective in a lot of ways. And it, it also kind of made me realize that maybe poetry and audiobook could be interesting. Though, in this case, I would uh, recommend the hard copy. I wasn't crazy about the reading in this one, but I am definitely going to do some, some looking around at other audiobook poetry collections. Uh, so I'm pretty excited about that in the future. Awesome. All right. I put it, put it in my cart. But also like the idea, I, I mean, poetry 
for some poets is actually like a performance art. So it's super interesting that you listen to it as an audiobook. Does does Jericho Brown usually like is he a I don't know what the term is, I'm losing it when they do poetry out loud in poetry slams? I'm not aware of him having a like performance aspect to his poetry, but that's actually something that I would say about the audiobook is it was performed by someone else. And I think it would have been like um Ocean Wong often does their audiobooks. And I think that that would have been a lot more impactful if Jericho Brown had actually done it. Yeah. Deeply interesting. Very interesting to have like an audiobook of poetry, which is like super intimate and super you to be like performed by another person. Very interesting. Very interesting. All right. So we've got some like different formats going on, people reading it in different ways. Mark, I think you went with like a traditional poetry collection. Yeah, that's correct. Because for this particular book, I read Cluster by Suvankum Thama Vongsa. Still trip over her name, no matter how many times I tried to say it, unfortunately. So Thamavongsa's family is originally from Laos, and when her family fled the country during the country's civil war, and they lived for several years in a refugee camp in Thailand, which is where she was born, before being granted to entry to Canada as refugees. And though she's primarily known for her recent Giller Award-winning short story collection, How to Pronounce Knife, her writing career began very much in poetry, having written four collections of poems prior to that collection of stories. And for many years, these collections weren't very well known until she, of course, won the Giller Award. And there's now much more attention for her early writing. So thankfully, a lot of her earlier writings were out of print for many years, but they're now being brought back into print by uh, larger publishers because there's much more interest and demand for her writing, which is a very good thing. And I've actually read a, a couple of those earlier collections and very much enjoyed them, which is why I wanted to talk about this particular book. So within these poems, I feel like they sort of center around two kind of broad areas of either nature or human like relationships between people and things like that, just kind of a traditional kind of way of uh, tackling poetic subject matter, I feel like. But she definitely brings her own unique voice to these things from her own perspective and her own experiences. So, for example, in the particular poem Spider, she talks about the spinning of a web as the spinning of a life, a home, a place. Even the temporariness and the sudden destruction of a spider's web, how it can be made, re- made constantly through a struggle and determination, how that the spider's web represents a kind of meaningful like way of living for the spider, which is kind of an interesting way of looking at it. And that's definitely kind of emblematic of the way she sort of talks about these different animals in some of the different poems. But she also has a poem called Snake, which tackles the shedding of the snake's skin as a kind of like a way of like it shedding its own past, its own like everything it carries with it, it leaves behind and a kind of form of freedom that everything has carried and clothed itself in and the world is left behind and moves on to its next stage of its life. There's also another poem in the collection called Blowfish, which sort of deals with a recently deceased shriveled up blowfish that a family on a road trip finds and takes home with them for reasons that aren't quite known or explained but for whatever reason this family they feel like they have to like give this blowfish like its own like kind of like sending off almost in a way like they they can't just leave it there so then even though like it's this weird experience that they have that no one else knows about this blowfish it kind of has this memorable quality to it as to this, this narrator in this poem looks back on it years later and that moment in their family's time together in her childhood so these kind of like 
nature animal kind of poems, I guess you would call them almost have this, I don't want to call it anthropomorphizing effect, but like kind of like inserting kind of like a human perspective, like kind of like a human trying to understand these different forms of natural life and place within the world, which I found somewhat interesting. There's also a number of more sort of human-centered poems. For example, in the longest poem in the collection titled Zero, which is approximately 15 pages or so long, whereas most of the other poems are only about one or two pages long. Um, this is much more so, somewhat long-form poetry, I guess you could call it almost. It's sort of like a ruminative exploration of the meaning of the number as something that begins and ends in the same place when it's handwritten, essentially forming beginning at one place and then ending again at the same place that you started at that it's meant to represent nothing less as a measurement of something like temperature, at which point it does have a specific quantity or value or balance between like a certain equilibrium or homeostasis, more or less, you could say a zero is a balanced sum. It's also the shape of like a ball in a game. And then we are transported to Laos during the Civil War period and the dangers of children playing outdoors with balls and round shaped objects. And this kind of like transporting of this like very like sudden shift from an abstract plane to like more concrete and like lived experience that can be somewhat jarring at times, I feel like. But at the same time, it, it kind of gives like a unique blending of these two aspects together, of like a more abstract poetry beginning to into a more concrete setting later on in the poem. It's very hard to describe how she manages that transition without actually like just simply reading out the entire story. Very hard to impart that onto you, but I would say that. It very much makes much more sense as you sort of like go through the elaboration, like step by step of the lines as they unfold, more or less. In this poem, there's also a line that emblemizes Famifongsa's approach to poetry. And there's the line that meaning doesn't give you clarity and clarity is not meaning, kind of saying that it's it's not meant to give you like a very clear and solid or like finished picture of something that you get in like a, like a narrative story. It's very much meant to be open-ended and an examination of trying to find a meaning within these kinds of events and these abstract thoughts, more or less, is my understanding of how some of these poems unfold. There's also reflections in other stories about things passed on from generation to generation or from sibling to sibling within families, things like clothing or the way that each sibling receives the same haircut from their mother, regardless of their gender or anything else. But that's because that's the one haircut that their mother knows how to give them. So there's kind of this very familial aspects to some of the poems as well that I found very interesting. I found very, um, that were much more concrete as opposed to some of the other ones. If you prefer a more concrete approach, there's definitely some poems that are in that kind of vein, whereas there's others that are much more abstract and difficult to explain in a very short format like this. Perhaps my favorite poem of the collection, or one of my favorites, um, we're introduced to the behind the scenes life and memories of the person who once played a famous character on TV. It's a relatively long and sort of melancholy poem, but touches on the deepest and innermost feelings and memories of this person. And this poem is, of course, called Mr. Snuffleupagus, and is about the famous Sesame Street character and the person who toiled underneath the costume of the character. This includes the work he put into smiling on cue to speak his lines in a clear voice for all to hear, and a special friendship with Big Bird. Even if Big Bird didn't see Mr. Snuffleupagus the same way that he saw him, the memories and experiences were true enough to him. And now this narrator was not the first person, <laughs> first nor the last person to be Mr. Snuffleupagus. And on his very first day, he was told by Big Bird, people don't last long around here. Despite this, our narrator lasts about two and a half years in the role of Mr. Snuffleupagus, despite the constant toiling and enduring auditions to replace him that occurred regularly. 
with a distinct lack of recognition of him as a person. So in this sense, he's sort of gone through a sort of precarious employment situation in his time as Mr. Snuffleupagus. But even though people don't quite recognize him for who he is, he had his own unique personality and character that came through and lived things up, things up as that character. And this poem sort of amounts to kind of like testament, I guess you could almost say, with no record or archive to document his name, face, or characteristics, with no one around on Sesame Street who knows his name anymore. Not even that guy who lived in the garbage can. There's a final statement he provides himself, which is that I was there, that it was me. So I will say it so for myself, because I live in this world too, as a kind of final farewell for the overlooked or ignored aspect of something that lingers underneath the famous costumed figure. So whether it's like familiar subjects for poetry, like family members and nature, or potentially surprising subjects like dressed up characters from children's programs, or transforming brokerage report statistics into a poetic form, which there is a series of poems titled Brokerage Report 1 through 5 that do transform these kind of statistical and like bland statements of brokerage report into a poetic form. She sort of treats them all with the same kind of delicacy and sensitivity to the actual or possible thoughts, feelings, and connections that lie underneath the surface. In a way, I kind of feel like that's the strength of the different poetic forms of expression and style used in the book when taking something familiar or obvious and turning to something else to point to associations and similarities that everyday observation or familiarity may lead us to overlook or to forget. Cluster as the title of the collection, I think, also makes sense, since most of the poems do focus on how distinct people, animals, or inner phenomena kind of form a constellation or cluster within that particular person, that setting, whether it's in the past or looking towards the future, that's very much present within the, the narrators of each of the different poems. So if you like poems that play with the gap between the past and the present, the everyday appearance of things, associations between them, or interested in reading about interesting array of animals, humans, and natural processes, then you may also like Cluster by Suvankum Samavongso. So thanks for making me cry about Mr. Snuffleupagus this morning, Mark. I really appreciate it. Oh my God. And that's the joy question mark of poetry. If that one moment you'll be having a funny revelation, the next morning you're going to be bawling about Mr. Snuffleupagus. Hey, all right, we got it. We got to stop this feeling too many things. Um, all right. Okay. So thank you so much to my book friends for bringing these fascinating, fascinating, fascinating collections of poetry and showing exactly what can be done with the format, um, what can be... <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Snuffleupagus. He's just inside that suit all day. Okay, bring it together. Okay, so... <laughs> Um, thank you for bringing all of these collections and all of these uh, wonderful voices and sharing their collections and sharing their thoughts and emotions and feelings and their very unique perspectives um, with all of our book friends out there on the internet. I hope that for this April and perhaps even beyond is that you join that 11.7% of poetry readers out there and pick up a collection at your local library or maybe find it like an Instagram poet that you really connect with. And maybe just make that that poetry a little a little tiny part of your life because you never know what it might change within you, what it might evoke, and how many tears you're going to cry over an extinct animal that's a puppet. Have a good day, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. 
If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Thank you.